Well, let's get your Bibles out. Let's go to Romans chapter 4 today. Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 1, reading through verse 25, the entire chapter in one week. Are you ready? Do you fasten your seatbelts? Let's dig into God's Word. Let's stand together as we read together. This is Romans chapter 4. Paul is writing to us about faith. And um, let's see what Paul has to say to us today. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of a man in whom God credits righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are, forgiven, are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received this promise, that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by, gra may be by grace, and it may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are faith in Abra of Abraham. He is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. That's why it is credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will give credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Father, that's a mouthful. That is a mouthful, oh God. And Lord, sometimes just reading it through, you sometimes get a little lost. So Lord, would you make it clear to us as we look at the anatomy of faith, the anatomy of justifying faith, and would you help us to understand what you did for us in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Well, that is a mouthful. Boy, I'll tell you. Um, how many of you uh, read it before you came to church? Would you raise your hand if you read it before you came to church? A few of you did. Thank you so much. Especially in this series, it would be very, very helpful that um, you uh, read the scripture before you come. Um, so that um, you might have a clue when I read it for the first time uh, publicly, you'll have a, the ability to follow along there. 
Today, we are going to, um, we're going to go back to where Paul has been taking us. We've been, looking at, we've been looking at this theme verse. The theme verse is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And it says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. And then in verse number 17 of that, of that same portion, he says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And today I want to focus our attention today on the word faith. Because really it is faith, it is the means that brings us to the place where the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ makes a difference in your life. Paul says that this revelation that God is going to bring a righteousness from God and that righteousness is going to be received by faith because he even quotes the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. We're talking about the good news now. Last, the last beginning of this series, we talked about the bad news. Last week, we, we introduced the good news that we are justified by faith. In other words, let me say this again. You are made right by God. You're not made right by yourself. You're made right by God. This is what God has done for you. He has done it for you. In a a few chapters, in a little while, we're going to talk about what God does in us through sanctification. But justification is what God does for us. It's what he does for us. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are putting your faith in him and he gives you pardon. He forgives you of your sins. You enter into what is called a new birth experience. Your life is reborn. Your life is transformed. And that launching is a, starts with pardoning you of all of your sins. It's like, it's like the greatest news of all. God pardons you. Um, every four years, you know, they come to an end of a, of, a, of a presidential term. And usually there are people who are writing letters to the president of the United States and they're asking, would you please pardon me? Would you please pardon me? And they will write this long letter and they'll give all the reasons why the president should pardon them for the crimes that they have committed against the United States laws. And the president will look through those things and he will, he will pardon people. Usually on an outgoing administration, the last act of a president is to pardon a whole bunch of his own friends and cronies. You know, Anybody who thinks that, that, he, that he likes or whatever, he can forgive. Or maybe he's a little more, you know, a little more um, um, above board and he really takes a thoughtful approach. I don't know. I've never been in that position. But God offers a free pardon to all of us. That's good news, my friends. He justifies us. He, he, gives, he makes you innocent before Almighty God, even though you are guilty. Because he made it very clear that all of us are sinners. And all of us deserve death. The wages of sin is death. And so we discussed that last week, and now Paul moves into a a whole other realm because he wants to give us an illustration of what it really means to be saved. What it really means to, to, to receive justifying grace, the righteousness of God in your life. And he's going to use the example of Abraham, of Abraham. The reason he uses Abraham is because Abraham is considered the father of the Jewish people. He's the father of, the, of, of faith, really. He's the father. He's the one who was credited to as righteous. And so Paul begins chapter 4 with a question. What then shall we say about Abraham? It's like, it's like he's talking to an imaginary person again who's uh, rhetorically asking him a question. What shall we say about Abraham, our forefather, who discovered in this matter? What did Abraham have to say about the matter of justification, the matter of the righteousness of God coming along? What did he have to say? Because you remember, Paul is writing to a, not only a Gentile congregation, but a Jewish, Jewish congregation. And, and he's trying to make the case that God has done a new thing. And this new thing is not something that just happened right at the time he's writing this. It goes all the way back to Abraham. 
And he says, what does Abraham have to say about this? If, he says, now notice the word if. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, in other words, he was justified by his own merit, his own ability to become righteous before God, which, by the way, Paul has already said is not possible, okay? It's not possible to justify yourself. It's not possible to get there, and Paul's going to make that clear to us. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he's not saying that Abraham was justified by works, but there were a segment of people in the Jewish, Jewish faith who believed that Abraham was justified by works or by his own merit or what he had done. He says he had something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, if this is true, he could boast about it to people, but he had no boasting before Almighty God. And you remember last week we ended the, se- the sermon last Sunday when we talked about, you know, boasting. You know, who could boast? Who could boast? And imagine getting to heaven and everybody boasting about why they're there. Well, I'm here because I used to, I worked in vacation Bible school all week long and I deserve to be in heaven. You know, I, I should, I, I, I'm here because, you know, you know how much money I gave to the Faith Forward campaign? Well, look how wonderful I am, you know? And we could start boasting about who we think we are, and we could try to prop ourselves up. Well, there will be no boasting in heaven. The only boasting is boasting about Jesus and what he has done. And so Paul says, if Abraham does have any boasting, it's not before Almighty God. And if you've got any boasting that you can boast about, it's not anything before what God has done for you. And therefore, you should humble yourself. And so he then goes on to say, he quotes quotes Scripture. I love how the Bible quotes the Bible. Isn't that great? The Bible quoting the Bible. And, And Paul then quotes Genesis 15, 6. That's why I asked you in my note last night in my email to read Genesis 15 ahead of time. Because because Paul is assuming that you know the story of Abraham. He's assuming that you know who Abraham is and you understand what what Abraham did. And he says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham put his faith, that's what the word belief says, he put his faith in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham got saved, my friends. That's what happened. All the way back in the very beginning of the Old Testament, Abraham puts his faith in Almighty God. And when he puts his faith in Almighty God, not in himself, not in his own merit, not in anything else. He becomes a believer who is credited to him as righteous. He stands before Almighty God as a righteous person. This is foreshadowing what Jesus Christ is going to do thousands of years in the future. But he is credited to him as righteous. So here's the question. What kind of faith justifies you? What kind of faith justifies you? Now, I ask that question because, you know, I don't know about you, but it took me quite a bit of time in my beginning years of walking with Jesus to really understand what this faith thing was really all about. Because I got saved on Easter Sunday, 1982, and then I got saved every Sunday for the next six months. I mean, every Sunday I'd come to church and I'd say, man, it didn't work last week. I'm going to do it all over again. i got to accept Jesus Christ all over again. I, my faith wasn't strong enough. I don't, I don't deserve it, so I would, go to the, I, would go to the, I would go to the altar and I would pray again and pray again and pray again. And I knew that it's somewhere it needed to work, but I didn't fully understand what it really meant. They told me it was a gift, but I didn't believe it. I still believed I had to earn it. I still believed I had, to, I had to be better in order to receive it. And Abraham was somebody who received righteousness because he just believed. What does it really mean? What kind of faith is this? I mean, what, what does it look like? And so Paul wants to make that clear to us today. 
He wants to make it clear to us what justifying faith is really like. And he says to us four things. First of all, he says justifying faith does not depend upon human achievement. It does not depend upon human achievement. Or as another term, on works. It doesn't depend on your effort. It doesn't depend on how good you are. This is really good news, my friends. I want to tell you something. Because God doesn't grade us on a scale, you know. It's either you're perfect and you're in or you're perfect and you're, you're not perfect and you're out. And if that's the case, we're all out. He made that clear. We're all sinners. And so Paul says this faith is not dependent on human achievement. And he wants to remind us about, about what he did for Abram. Now, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you will discover the beginning of God's encounter with Abram, who becomes Abraham. The Tower of Babel in chapter 11 is there, and God has confused all of the languages. He separated the nations. He separated people by, by language groups. That's how the Bible just describes all of these different nationalities. And he describes this and he says, and then it says, the Lord said to Abram, I want you to leave your country, your people, your father's household and go to the land I will show you. By the way, for Abraham to leave his country, his own household, his own land and go to a place he'd never been to was faith. Amen. Right from the get-go, the relationship that God has with Abraham was built on a foundation of faith. I want you to leave. I want you to go. And I will show it to you. I will make you, notice he says, into a great nation. And I will bless you. And so God calls Abram, now catch this, who is a Gentile, to become the first Jewish person. He is the father of many nations. By the way, this term great nation, the word nation, when you translate that into the Greek, and then you translate that into the, the Latin, which is then translated into the English, is where we get the word Gentile from. You'll say, the Lord says, I, you, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. And so, so, so Abram, who is the father of all nations is also the father of the Jews. God calls Abram to leave his country, which is a foreign nation to the Jewish land. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to start a brand new people with you. That people became known as the Jewish people, the Jews, the people after Judah, the people that were following God. I will make you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people of the earth will be blessed. So what does God give Abram? He gives him a promise. The promise is that if you will leave and follow me, I'm going to take you to a land, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. He is 75 years old when he receives this word from God. And he begins the journey, the journey with Sarai and his family to leave Ur and go all the way to a place he had never been to and to establish a brand new people. And his offspring were going to become the Jewish people that God was going to build a covenantal relationship with them. That covenantal relationship. Now, if you move on from there to chapter, chapter 15, he says, God says, he, he, God, took him in the outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And your offspring is going to be as many as the stars in the sky. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be marvelous. It's going to be, it's going to be so phenomenal, beyond what you can ever imagine. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever gone up and tried to count the scars? I mean, it's endless. It just seems like that goes on and on and on. And God was saying to, to Abraham, somebody at this point in time had zero children. And as we learned later, 
Abraham was unable to have children because he was married to a woman who was barren. And she was now very, very old. And she was unable to have children. But God gives him a promise. And that promise is your offspring is going to be as many. And here's what Abraham's response was in verse 15, 6. Abraham believed God. What did he believe? He believed that God was going to bless him. He believed that God was going to give him a great land. He believed that his offspring were going to be a great nation. It was going to be phenomenal. It was going to be blessed. That is justifying faith, my friends. You know what justifying faith is? When you take God at his word. When you believe what he says to you. And you don't doubt it. Now, you, sometimes we go through doubt as faith, in our faith. But ultimately in our heart of hearts, we know that we know that we know that we know. And that's the assurance that God wants to give all of us is the assurance of faith that we know ultimately we have put our faith not in ourselves but in Almighty God. But here's what happens to, to many of us. Sometimes we think our faith is something we manufacture. Something that we have to, have to make ourselves believe. And we turn faith into a work. We turn faith into achievement. We turn faith into an action instead of it being something where we take the faith that God has given to us and we surrender it and believe that God is able to do what he said he would do, not so much what we will do. And that is faith that he wants to give to us. So I want you to notice some contrast here because Paul goes on to talk about this idea that he talks about that you don't get it by human achievement. And there are three contrasts. I wanna, I wanna, you can write these down in your notes. First of all, works and trust. The word trust, by the way, is the word for faith. He uses the word trust, he uses the word believe, he uses the word faith. Those are all interchangeable, okay? To put your trust in God. There is a contrast of obligation and gift and there is the, the, the contrast of wages and credited. Okay? So there's three contrasts that he lays out for us to talk about two different ways of achieving the righteousness of God. One is through merit, which doesn't bring the righteousness of God. One is through faith, which brings the righteousness of God. And now notice what he says in verses 4 and 5. Read along with me. With this in mind. Now, when a man works... Okay, when you work human achievement, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. You go to work. Maybe you work a job where you are paid by the hour. And you, 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 pay, you, you check in and you check out when you begin and when you end work. And at the end of the pay period, what do you expect from the person you're working for? You're expecting not a gift. You're expecting a paycheck. In other words, your employer is obligated to pay you for the time and the effort and the, and the work that you have done during those hours that you gave. You're salaried. You haven't, the, your, your company that you work for is obligated to pay you. And when payday comes, you expect that your check is either in your box, in your mailbox, or it is deposited in your bank on that day. And if it's not, what happens? You're not happy, are you? I mean, if those of you who run companies, you know how important payroll is. Paying the bills and making sure your employees are paid. Do you know in the state of California that if you fire somebody, now this is what I've been told at least, so if I'm wrong on this, um, go talk to somebody who told me this, but if you fire somebody, within the same day you fire them, you have to give them their last check. You are obligated to do that. You earn that, okay? So, so now when a man works, his wages are not credited. It's not a gift. It's not something that you just say, oh yeah, he says, but it's an obligation. However, 
to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. The word credited is a banking term. It's a banking term. It is credited to you as righteous. When you get, for example, if you have a, if you have a, um, a credit card, every month the credit card company will send you an itemized list of all of your debts that you have incurred the prior 30 days that you have taken on credit. And it will tell you, here's what you owe, here's the minimum payment you've got to pay. They want you to pay the minimum payment for as long as you can so they can earn interest, so they can make money on you. But if you wanted to pay off your debt to the credit card company, you would have to send them the amount of money that you have put on credit. God says, uh, you have a great, huge debt with me. And you can't work enough to earn enough to pay the obligation to God. The only thing you can do is receive his righteousness by faith and he credited you righteousness because of what he did on the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's faith. That's what justifying faith is. It is putting all of your trust in God. It's this side of the equation. It's trusting in the gift that was credited to you. This side of the equation is working for an obligation in wages. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, I would hope and pray that most of you understand this already. You've grown up in the church. You understand this. But it's so important for us because a lot of new believers, like myself, didn't understand that when I received Jesus Christ, I received a gift that I didn't have to work for anymore. I was just as saved on Easter Sunday as I was a week ago when I went back to the altar to get saved. I didn't have to do that over and over again. But I didn't understand that because I still had a work mentality. And there are a lot of Christians who still have work mentalities. Human achievement. A few weeks ago, Jane and I and Weston flew from um, Burbank to Maryland to go to a wedding. And one of the planes we got on was the, seven, the Boeing 737 MAX. This is the plane that had crashed four or five times. It would go in the air and all of a sudden it would just go. And it killed hundreds of people. They grounded the entire fleet for well over a year. Trying to figure out why this brand new state of the art Supposedly the greatest plane that's ever been created for passengers was crashing. And they discovered some software issues. They discovered some problem with pilot training. They discovered that, you know, learning how to fly the plane just in a simulator wasn't the same. That, the, that the, this rendition of the Boeing 737 was different than the pri previous 737. But this was our first experience of walking on a plane going, oh. Hey, Jane, this is the plane that crashed. And for the first time in a long time, I just had a little bit of jitters in me about sitting on this plane. I was a little bit uncomfortable with it. And I was reminded about when I first began to fly. And I remember getting on a plane and going, okay, God. I, I didn't, wasn't even a Christian, I don't think. but I, maybe, No, I was a Christian, but I was praying. Oh, God, get this thing in the air. Oh, God, get this thing in the air. Oh, God, get this thing in the air. Oh, God, I'm praying, I'm praying. Get this thing in the air. And I would pray all the way through takeoff, holding on, tense. Oh, God, raise this plane up. And then I would hear the announcement. Please put your seatbelts on. Please 
put your tray tables up, your ta we are going to land. And all the way from the time that I heard that announcement to the time the plane landed, I would pray, oh God, put us on the ground. Oh God, put us on the ground. Oh God, put us on the ground. Oh God, don't let us crash. Because I had learned that the takeoff and the landing was the most important thing. And for some reason, I did not trust the pilots, the airplane manufacturers, the engineers. I had no trust in all of them. And I was just worried the whole time. And I thought if I prayed hard enough and long enough, this plane would go up and down and I would be safe. A lot of us treat our faith that way in Christ. There is a place in your journey with the Lord that you can find rest and peace and assurance in knowing that you know that you know that God's got your life in his hands. And you don't have to worry about it. When you finally come to the place where you're at the end of yourself and you just offer yourself, you just say, Lord, I put my trust in you, in what you have done. I don't understand it, but I put my faith and trust in you. You have peace that he talks about, by the way, in Romans chapter 5. That's justifying faith. But here's what I've discovered about us human beings. We like faith in God, but we also hold faith in ourselves. We, gotta, we think we got to help God. Like I had to help the plane take off. Like I had to help the plane land. Your helping God does not work and has no effect whatsoever. your salvation Christ did it all it's a righteousness from God not from you and God or from God and you and Paul wants to make that clear a righteousness he goes on to say, let me give you another example, because Abraham is really big in the Jewish faith, but, you know, David was pretty all up there, too. And if there was anybody who couldn't put any merit on himself, it was David. David says what? The same thing when he speaks of blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. What is David doing? David is declaring that he is righteous before God, by faith. It is credited to him by God. And he quote, Paul quotes Psalm 32. Isn't that interesting? He quotes the Bible again. Here's what he said. Blessed are those whose transgressions. All right, what's a transgression? A transgression is when you violate God's laws knowingly. When you transgress against the known will of God, you violate God's laws. He says, blessed are those whose transgressions. What was David's transgressions? Adultery? Murder? Lying? I mean, you, you, he had three of the biggest ones of all. If there was anybody that was put on a trial being the leader of the nation, they would say, throw him in jail. He said, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. You see, we so often, I said this last week, think that the Old Testament is about the law, and the New Testament is about grace. Can I just tell you, the whole Bible is about grace. It's all there. And, and David understood this. He says, it's nothing like realizing your sin will never count against him. 
If you have justifying faith, you're not going to get before Almighty God and God's going to dupe you and go, yeah, but what about that? And what about that? And what about that? And remember that time in secret when nobody ever knew that? You will stand there and you will say, my sins have been given because of Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen? Well, he goes on to say one more thing. He says justifying faith is not religious rituals. He then moves on to what is called circumcision. Notice what he says. And I'm going to read this in the New Living Translation because it, I think it's a little more clearer than the, than the NIV. Although the NIV is pretty clear, I think this is even more clear for you. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham had already had faith, that God had already accepted him, declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. One of the great debates of early Christianity, if you read the book of Acts, was if you become a Christian, do you have to be circumcised in order to be counted as those who are part of God's kingdom? Do grown men have to be circumcised in order to be Christian? Does circumcision save you? It was a ritual, it was a religious activity, it was a way for God to mark his people. Abraham had started a, a new land and a new nation, and he says, I'm going I'm to mark my offspring by this, by this sign, he says. But this sign that Abraham, ha Abraham had through circumcision, Abraham already had faith. He had already accepted him. He would already declared to be righteous even before he was there. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but, not, but have not been circumcised. And they are counted as righteousness be, because of their faith. Now this is not a big deal to us, okay? In the 21st century and mostly a Gentile congregation, worrying about circumcision is not a big deal. But Paul is trying to tell the Jewish folks that are part of the church in Rome that the Gentiles are just as much part of God's kingdom as the Jewish are. That we're all in the same. And that Abraham, who was the first Jewish person called to be the start a brand new nation who eventually become known as the Jews, he is also the father of all the Gentiles. And that's why I put in bullets down here for you. Abraham is the first of all, the, of all, the father of the believing Gentiles. He is also, Abraham, is the father of, of the Jews, not because of their circumcision, because of, but on the grounds of their faith. And he says in verse number 16, a little while longer, he says this, He is the father of us all. Do you remember the kids' song? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, left arm. Father Abraham had many sons, come on, had many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot. Turn around, Father Abraham. All right, that's enough. But what are we teaching the kids that our faith goes all the way back to the one who is credited righteous. To the one when God began to confuse all the languages and all of the lands and all of the people. God was saying, I am the father of all nations. I am not the father of one specific group of people. I am not, I'm not raising up one particular part of the human race. I am actually want my, the whole world to be redeemed. For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son. 
And so, so Paul is saying to, to the church here, he's saying, listen, it's not about circumcision. It's not about religious activities. And for us, it would be baptism. It's one of the dangers I see in baby infant baptism is when people assume that their, that their parents choosing to dunk them underwater and pray a prayer will be their salvation. Now, I understand in our theological tradition, that is affirming the prevenient grace of God, that God is at work in that baby's life even before the baby even recognizes God. And that as that, that child grows up in a home that is filled with the faith of Christ, their, their understanding of what it means to be Christian will almost become natural for them. But there's a danger in that because I remember when I was... 13, 12, I thought it was in. You know why? Because I was baptized when I was five days old or 10 days old or whatever it was as a Catholic baby. And I didn't understand that salvation is not found in your baptism. It's found in your faith. It's found in your faith. And so it's not a ritual. It, baptism is a sign of the inward work of God. And also Holy Communion. Communion is not, it doesn't save you. You don't just come and get a little juice and a little, a little bit of bread and you just do that over and over again and you, you just like receive grace. You know, this is my grace today. This is my grace today. That, that is not what, how God saves you. You are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why baptism and holy communion are the outward sign of the inward grace of God. Amen? That's what Paul is trying to say to us today. Well, the third thing he says, faith, justifying faith is not keeping the rules. It was not through the law that Abraham and offspring received the promise that he would be made heir of the world. Now let's stop there for a moment. This word promise right here, it's the first time Paul uses this term in the book of Romans. The promise that he's talking about here is going back to the promise that we started in Genesis chapter 12. Where God says to Abraham, I want you to leave your country and I want to bless you. I'm going to give you a land. The promise was you're going to have lots of offspring. Okay, that's the promise. It was, the promise was given before the law was given to Moses. Before the law was even given. Before circumcision happened. But through the righteousness that comes by faith. For it is those who live by faith as are heirs. Faith has no value and the promise is worthless. Because the law brings wrath and where there is no law there is no transgressions. So Paul says the law didn't bring life. You can't, you can't really follow the law and become righteous before God. Because you know why? First of all you can't keep all the law. You'll break at least one. And if you break one you break them all. And the law didn't promise you life eternal. The law, all it did is make it clear that you're a sinner. So you can't be a rule follower. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I would say to teenagers sometimes, what does it mean to be a Christian? And here was the common answer. Well, if I follow all the rules. If I just follow all the rules. If I do all the right things. And the very common perception of Christianity is nothing more than a proclamation of do's and don'ts. It's a, it's a lifestyle of restriction, not freedom. It's a lifestyle that takes life, doesn't give life. Because when you base your Christianity upon rules of what you do or don't do, it creates a lifestyle that creates something where you are holier than thou, that you achieve your righteousness before God because you kept a bunch of rules. Now, if you live in the Hardy household, you'll discover that my wife is the rule follower and I'm the rule breaker. And it really goes back to our upbringing. She grew up in a home where right and wrong was taught, where mom and dad were, were, were as, it wasn't strict, but they were clear about, about right and wrong. And I grew up in a home where there was no right or wrong. 
And I did a whole lot of sinning. A whole lot of bad stuff. Didn't really feel bad about it. Until later in life when it saw the destruction that was going on in my life. I love what Dr. Greathouse says here. The law does not promise blessings on those who observe it. Rather, it invokes a curse on those who violate it. Let that sink in. Many of your children who are having a hard time following Jesus Christ after they've grown up in the church go back to this whole idea that they don't understand the grace of God that comes by faith. And they still believe that the faith is nothing more than you trying to make them reform or to submit to a bunch of rules. You're not going to see people come to Christ and fix themselves and then come to God. You know who gets justified? The wicked. You know who gets justified? The sinners. That's who gets justified. There is no justification for trying to do the right thing and then feeling like, okay, I've got enough. I've kind of over the hump a little bit. Now I can be accepted. No. It's still wicked. And that's what Paul is trying to say. He says, therefore, the promise comes by faith, not through works, not through rule keeping, so that, that they may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are from the law, but also to those who are of faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Going back to that same theme he talked about before. Last one. Wow, time's fleeting. But this is probably the most important one. Justifying faith believes the impossible is possible through Christ. Catch this. Two things I want you to see here. He says, first of all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is the father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. You know what was dead? Sarai, his wife, had a dead womb. That's how they considered it. And when God told Abram that his wife was going to have a baby at 99 years old, what did Sarai do? She laughed. <laughs> she didn't believe. Abraham believed. He believed that the impossible was possible because God said so. He believed that, that God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. That's faith. And then he says... Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him. Against all hope, against all hope, Christ offers you forgiveness of all your sins. Against all human achievement, against all Religious activities against all rule keeping. He offers you something that only he can do the impossible he makes possible in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is trying to say to us. And he ends this entire chapter with these two verses. And I'll end here. Yet... He, Abraham, did not waver through unbelief regarding this promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us. The words that God gave Abraham all the way back when he believed the promise even though it was impossible for him to have offspring with a wife who was barren. By the way, little side note here. 
Abraham did have some tangents where he tried to help God. Hagar, Ishmael. He said, oh, well, that's the promise. I really believe it. Maybe I got to do it this way. Could I just tell you, a lot of us Christians who have faith in God try to think we got to help God to do it his, our way because we can't see how he's going to do it. Who believe in him and were, uh, uh, let me go back here. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteous. For us who believe in him who are raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised for life for our justification. So here's what Paul's doing. He is taking the example of Abraham putting his faith in God that he was going to be the father of many nations, have many offsprings, through his relationship with Sarai, his wife, who was barren, that was an impossibility. God was going to make it possible, just like you cannot forgive yourself of their sins, that Jesus died on the cross for you, rose again from the dead, and ultimately your faith is Putting in Christ gives you justification for your sins. Amen? Wow, that's a lot. Well, let's stand. Did I not tell you that this is meat and potatoes and not just fluff here? I'm trying to go through this book verse by verse with you. I'm trying to help you understand. And my prayer is that this, this exposition of God's word will help you to really come to grips with what it really means to be Christians, to be followers of Jesus Christ. Understanding what it means to be justified by faith alone. Amen. Faith alone in him. Now may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all as you go. And may he strengthen your faith. May he help your faith to become unwavering. May he help us all to stop trying and start resting in you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless everybody.